0: As we turn our attention to Daniel 4, let me take a second and reestablish a little of what we know about King Nebuchadnezzar and his relationship with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the reason it's important to do this is that it's going to help kind of frame out the context for Daniel 4, this really fascinating chapter. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar's father unexpectedly passed away. Forcing good old Neb to leave Judea in the midst of a siege, the siege of Jerusalem, in order to return to the capital city, Babylon, to officially take the throne. In order to punish the Jews for siding with the Egyptians, there had been a conflict, King Nebuchadnezzar decides on his way back to Babylon to take captive an unspecified number of Hebrew young men with the intention that they serve in his palace. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's first personal interaction that we have recorded with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah comes at the end of this period of three years where they're trained in the ways of Babylon, Babylon law and culture and society. They're brought before the the king and, and officially, formally interviewed. Daniel 1, verses 19 through 20 records that the king interviewed them, and among them all, Was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Now, as Daniel and his friends begin their various roles within the king's court, chapter 2 opens with Nebuchadnezzar having a dream that greatly disturbed him. While no one was able to meet his demand, to provide the details of the dream, in addition to the interpretation, God uses Daniel to articulate to King Nebuchadnezzar some very important things about himself and the future of world affairs. For our purposes this morning, we're not going to rehash all of Daniel 2, other than I want to read Daniel's lead-in to the interpretation and then Nebuchadnezzar's reaction afterwards. These things are important. Daniel 2, verse 26, we read, The king answered and said to Daniel, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in, his, in its interpretation? So Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, they can't declare it to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in latter days. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's reaction after Daniel provides the dream in the interpretation. Verse 46 of chapter 2. We're told then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. The king said, truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him gifts, made him ruler over the province of Babylon and chief administrator over all of the wise men. Now, between Daniel 2 and 3, approximately 15 years pass. With his enemies finally conquered, peace achieved, and his attention now focused on refortifying the capital city, the third chapter opens with the king making this great image of gold, commemorating likely one of the many Babylonian deities. He builds this statue and he puts it on display in the plain of Dura. A crowd is summoned. And Nebuchadnezzar shrewdly uses this great image to be a test of loyalty. As we read, studied a few weeks ago, when the people who gathered heard the sound of all the music playing in symphony, everyone then was required to fall down and worship the golden image. And the consequences, by the way, for failing to do so, was that you would be thrown into a fiery furnace while everyone bowed. Chapter 3 tells us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they determined to stand. In the end, they refused to cowtail to Nebuchadnezzar's mandates and his warnings. Ultimately, they find themselves being thrown into the fire. Daniel 3, verse 23, records what happens next. We're told that these three men fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. So he rose in haste and and spoke and he said to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the fire? Look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. So Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and he spoke and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And they came from the midst of the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar declared, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They frustrated the king's word. They yielded their bodies that they should not serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar continues, I decree that any people, nations, tongues, which speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they should be cut into pieces. Their houses should be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. As you turn to chapter 4, you have to keep a few things in mind. In spite of the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar was a brutal, evil man, his exposure in this weird twist, his exposure to the things of God is really astounding. First, he has seen the power of God manifest through the righteous witness of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not only did these men refuse to eat the king's meat when they had arrived to Babylon, but they were willing to stand on their convictions in the face of persecution. Nebuchadnezzar knew from the very first time he met these men, he interviewed them, that they were different. And while he didn't fully understand why they were different, he attributed this distinction to their relationship with God. To his credit, Nebuchadnezzar deliberately promotes these four men to some of the most powerful positions in all of the kingdom. In fact, the case can be made that Daniel becomes Nebuchadnezzar's most influential and trusted advisor, the most trusted counselor, the most powerful man second to Nebuchadnezzar. The other thing you should consider as we get to this chapter is that it's amazing that God actually spoke directly to Nebuchadnezzar. Like back in chapter 2, Daniel even testifies. He says, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar through this dream, what will be in latter days. God spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar, this evil, wicked man. Now following the interpretation of his dream, there is no question that Nebuchadnezzar is convinced. He believed in the existence of the Hebrew God. In response to Daniel, he even goes so far as to acknowledge that Jehovah was the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets. Finally, consider as we approach this chapter that Nebuchadnezzar is one of, of a few people who's actually seen the supernatural manifestation of the presence of God for himself. As he peered into the fiery furnace, expecting to see three men, to his utter astonishment, he sees Jesus, a fourth, like the Son of God, walking in the midst of these three, protecting them from the flames. Nebuchadnezzar is so blown away by this event. He issues an official decree throughout all of the land, making it a death penalty for anyone to speak ill of the God of the Jews. The important thing to remember as we make this transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4 is that Nebuchadnezzar He believes God exists. And not only that, but he intentionally has surrounded himself with men who testify. Nebuchadnezzar has heard God's word. He's witnessed God's presence. He's seen God's power. And yet, in spite of all of those things, King Nebuchadnezzar has not accepted the Jehovah God as his own. Choosing to instead add him to the myriad of Babylonian deities. Let me quickly say knowing about God, believing he exists, hearing him speak, watching him work, even hanging out with the people who represent him well, knowing about God is absolutely no substitute for personally knowing God. Nebuchadnezzar was a believer he was not a convert. He wasn't a follower. You know, in a southern culture, whereby most people associate as being Christian, please understand, faith in God is never extended through associations. When we get to Daniel 4, most scholars, and it's hard to say with complete certainty, but most believe that roughly 30 years have transpired since the fiery furnace story. Daniel is in his late 40s, early 50s. We're likely about a year year or two from Nebuchadnezzar's death. What makes this chapter not only unique to the book of Daniel, but also really to the entire Old Testament, is that Daniel chapter 4 was actually written not by Daniel, but by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, before we dive into the text, the backdrop is, is, is as important as the context. Though the business of the empire was still being conducted. For seven years, King Nebuchadnezzar had vanished from public view. Now, he's the king, right? Of a global empire. So it was odd that the king made zero public appearances for seven years. I mean, imagine that. Then, out of the blue, one day, All the news networks get a ring. Nebuchadnezzar's calling a press conference. He emerges and then issues a formal declaration letting the public know what had happened during his long absence. This chapter, Daniel 4, it records for us this official proclamation written by Nebuchadnezzar. But more than that, I believe it also presents for us Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, his testimony, and his own words. A conversion that manifested a very public confession to be read in every corner of the Babylonian Empire. Now, the chapter is lengthy, so our approach, we're going to work our way through the text, and then we're going to close with kind of a few few ideas, a few final thoughts. Verse 1, Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar, The King, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all of the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His dominion is from generation to generation. Now keep in mind this introductory statement is being written by Nebuchadnezzar after the events that had transpired during these seven years. And right from the onset, the king wants everyone to know that the things that happened to him, what he calls signs and wonders, had been the work of the Most High God in his life. <laughs> that admission will take on a whole different level of meaning and significance when you come to learn what God had actually done, what that work looked like in Nebuchadnezzar's life. It's worth noting that Nebuchadnezzar here uses the singular pronoun, his, concerning God, four different times in his thesis. How great are his signs, his wonders, his kingdom, his dominion. What this implies is that the king has moved from, a, from polytheism, a view of, of multiple gods, to now possessing a more monotheistic view of the divine. Additionally, this statement, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me, in contrast to the king always referring to the Lord as either the God of Daniel or the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it lends here the impression, a first impression, that Nebuchadnezzar, he's not living... He's not possessing, he doesn't have a relationship with God through these other men. Rather, he's having an interaction with God on his own. You see, he's affirming a personal relationship with the Most High God. Again, his use of the definite article, the, indicates the one and only God. Furthermore, Nebuchadnezzar's confession that his kingdom, speaking of God, is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion from generation to generation, that statement alone, being read throughout the empire, would have been a shock to those reading it. Like the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, a king who had conquered the known world, was publicly acknowledging the Most High God of the Hebrews possessed a kingdom and dominion greater than his own. That was radically out of character for a man known for hubris. Nebuchadnezzar goes on to tell the world now his testimony. He's going to speak in the first person, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house, flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream, which made me afraid. And the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Nebuchadnezzar is, is recounting here, he's setting the scene for where his life was when all of these things happened. Like his life was full. His life was grand. He was at total peace and satisfaction until this dream came. And it just upset everything. His situation changed. Verse 6, Therefore, on account of the dream, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So the ma- magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, they come in, I told them to dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Understand it's not as though these men were unable to interpret the dream. We're going to find the dreams pretty straightforward. Rather, these men, were told very specifically, refuse to make known to the king what the dream meant. They're afraid. I should add, it's likely the reason that Nebuchadnezzar told them the dream, whereas back in, in Daniel 2, with his first dream, he requested they provide the details in addition to the interpretation, is that Honestly, Nebuchadnezzar probably had a good idea himself what the dream really meant. Like In many ways, what Nebuchadnezzar is seeking here is confirmation of what he already senses to be true. Verse 8, But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the Spirit of the Holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, So picture the scene. Nebuchadnezzar's giving everyone the dream. All these wise men, soothsayers, Chaldeans, magicians, they're looking at one another like, who's going to step up and tell the king what this means? This is bad news. No one's sure how to land. So everyone's kind of of looking around, uh, tapping their toes, seeing who's going to man up? Who's going to step forward? And, And then enters Daniel. Daniel enters the throne room. Now, looking back on this critical moment in his life, Nebuchadnezzar, he's setting up the story in some interesting ways. Let me give you a few details you shouldn't miss. First, notice, he says, But at last, Daniel came before me. And then he adds, And Daniel dwelt the spirit of the holy God. Now, in recounting this scene years after the fact, Nebuchadnezzar intentionally, did you notice it? He uses Daniel's God-given Hebrew name, calls him Daniel, not Belshazzar, the Babylonian name he had been given. No, this is the only time that Nebuchadnezzar calls his friend Daniel. This probably explains why Nebuchadnezzar then proceeds to clarify for the audience uh, who would have only known Daniel as Belshazzar, who who this actually was. He calls him Daniel. Everyone's like, who's Daniel? He's like, oh, his name was Belshazzar. And then he says that he was given that name according to the name of my God, which implies at this moment in his life, he's not yet a convert. Verse 9. And again, Nebuchadnezzar's recording what he said years before. So he uses Daniel's Babylonian name. He says, Belshazzar, chief of the magi- magicians. Because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. It's as though Nebuchadnezzar is like, finally, Daniel, of all the people I know, I know that you're going to shoot straight with me. I know you're going to tell me the truth. Now Nebuchadnezzar proceeds to tell him the dream. Verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached the heavens and it could be seen to all the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. I want to draw your attention back to chapter 2 for just a quick moment. For in his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, Daniel uses some interesting language, some imagery, we find now re-emerging in this second dream. Back in chapter 2, Daniel says, You, O king... Our king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. We are finding here parallels. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar continuing, he says, I saw in the vision of my head while on my bed that there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree. Cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it, let the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Now notice something We have an interesting, a very subtle transition. Did you notice? We're talking about this tree. We're talking about this tree. Talking about this tree. But then we read, let him graze. We switch to this masculine pronoun. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. And let seven times pass over him. The tree's clearly a man. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he wills, and sets over it the lowest of men. So that's the purpose. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able or or willing to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, you'll do it. The Spirit of the Holy God is in you. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. The King James translates for a time as for an hour. Again, imagine the scene. Nebuchadnezzar gives the dream to all of his counselors. They know the interpretation, but no one's going to speak out. Everyone knows the implications. No one wants to drop the news to Nebuchadnezzar, likely confirming what he already sensed. Enter Daniel. Neb's excited. Daniel, you're going to give it to me. Here's the dream. He recounts the dream. Now, Daniel, what's what's the deal? What does this mean? And Daniel just stood there for an hour, troubled. I don't think Daniel was hesitant out of any fear, but his heart weighed heavy. He just stood there. So the king, he said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. It's okay, man. Just tell me what's going on. So Belshazzar answered. and He said, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Basically what, what, what Daniel's saying here. He's saying, king, may I wish, I really wish more than anything, I wish. That this was not about you. That this was about your enemies. I mean, this is so bad, I wish this was about your enemies and not you. But here's the interpretation. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, which, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and, and whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home, it is you, O King. Who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Verse 23. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times have passed over him. This is the interpretation, O King, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. They, these watchers, shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Verse 26, and inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump, the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Basically, during this season of judgment, don't worry, the kingdom will remain intact. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Now, Daniel is moving beyond the dream. He's moving beyond the interpretation. He's seeking to give his friend, the king, some wise counsel in light of, well, this word. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your posterity. Nebuchadnezzar was about to receive a severe and divinely orchestrated judgment. And this was going to happen for a very specific and stated reason. God wanted him to know that it was he and he alone who rules over the kingdoms of men. It's he and he alone who gives it to whoever he chooses. See, Nebuchadnezzar had built his own kingdom, a heaven on earth. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was in control. He was filled with pride, arrogance. Knowing what's coming, Daniel advises the king, Neb, repent. Break off your sins. Be righteous. Be kind to the poor. A reckoning is coming. Now Reminiscing again, about what came next. All of this has already happened. Nebuchadnezzar continues, verse 28. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so a year passes, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke. And he said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a, rel- a royal dwelling by my power and for the honor of my majesty. And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. It's, it's never a good thing when a voice falls from heaven. This is what the voice said King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they, these watchers, shall drive you from men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, they, again the watchers, shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, seven years, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whoever he chooses. And that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from men, and ate grass like oxen, His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. (laughs) What happens to Nebuchadnezzar? What's being described? It's it's pretty clear. (laughs) He goes nuts. Cuckoo. Crazy. Cray cray. The mighty king of Babylon ends up leaving the comforts of the palace is driven from men, goes into a field, grazes, eats of the field like an oxen. His body is wet with the dew of heaven. Over the course of time, his, his hair grows out, he's gnarly looking. He's, his his claw, t- has fingernails and his toenails grow like their claws. Seven years. He loses it. It's as though Nebuchadnezzar, and imagine how that lands. Like, you guys have been curious, right, where I've been for seven years. I'm sure you were curious if the rumors were true. I mean, how do you keep that completely concealed? I know you were wondering if I was the one who flew over the cuckoo's nest. Well, everything you heard was spot on. God warned me. Gave me a year to repent, I refused and was humbled in the process. Now, while our passage leaves no doubt what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the issue of controversy centers on causation. Like what caused Nebuchadnezzar to go crazy and behave like he was a cow for seven years? While well, some point to an underlying physical or mental diagnosis. I'm of the opinion this was not a chemical imbalance or mental psychosis, but something else entirely. In verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar recounts how he saw in his dream a watcher, a holy one, or one set apart, coming down from heaven. Then in verse 25 we read how these beings, again they're plural, drove him from men so that his dwelling would be with the beasts of the field, and they would make him eat grass like oxen and wet him with the dew of heaven. Again, all of this is in the active sense. The watchers are doing this to him. In verses 16 and and 17, we're also told how the decision for his heart to be changed from that of a man to the heart of a beast was made by the decree of these watchers and by the sentence of the word of the holy ones. Like, without a question these watchers played a pivotal role in what happened. And they play a role because they possess this profound influence, not just over Nebuchadnezzar's behaviors, but it would appear they're actually able to change his heart, which means they're able to to influence the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar. It's my opinion that what we have being described Like, what happened? The causation. It's not due to a mental disorder or some kind of psychological anomaly. Instead, the textual evidence presents for us a scenario whereby God, in His judgment of Nebuchadnezzar, allows fallen angels or demonic beings, these watchers, to spiritually possess the king. I mean, if you take into account the dark practices, the witchcraft that was associated with the worship of these pagan Babylonian deities, this was entirely possible. On a related note, I can't help but to point out, any time God is speaking to you, warning you of your pride, sending even friends into your life to encourage you to repent before it's too late, and you resist God's word and his revelation. Don't be surprised if you lose it. I'm not saying you're going to be demonically possessed, but you're going to go nuts. Resisting what you know to be true. And in the end, you'll probably start behaving like a beast in the process. I should add that God does place several specific restrictions as to what these demons could or couldn't do. Like, aside from the fact that judgment wouldn't remove the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar, and it would be bookended by a timeline, seven years, Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, would be chopped down, but the stump and the roots would be left. And not just left, but they would be bound with a band of iron and bronze. Well, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to be tormented by demons and driven into the field to act like a cow for seven years. What this implies is that his life would be preserved. The Jewish Talmud, in fact, tells us that during this time period, it was Daniel that was running the empire and also tending, caring for his friend. Verse 34, And at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. So he's out there eating grass in the field. He looks up. He lifts his eyes to heaven. And he says, my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. Amazingly, the very moment the prescribed time had expired... The moment Nebuchadnezzar has learned the intended lesson, he lifts his eyes to heaven. His understanding returns, and I love it. He doesn't curse God. He's not angry. The moment he can, his lips are loosed, he worships and praises God, the Most High who lives forever and ever. Verse 35, he continues, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will. And the army of heaven... And among the inhabitants of the earth. He does what he wants in heaven. He does what he wants on earth. No one can restrain his hand or say, or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar has come to see God for who he really was. A total, complete, sovereign. Powerful. He continues, At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor also returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Like the idea behind this repeated phrase, return to me. These things return to me. is that Nebuchadnezzar realizes that, that all the things that he had beforehand, he thought he had done for himself, but now he recognizes these were all just a gift. They had been given to me by God. I was just a steward of them. They weren't mine. Not only was God in total control, But Nebuchadnezzar has come to view everything as being a gift. Daniel 4, verse 37 now records for us the final words of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth, and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. In closing, let's get to the real essence of the story. Uh, Right off the bat, to me, the most amazing thing about this chapter is that we have this chapter. Like, it's the fact that God actually wanted to have a relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, don't miss the obvious. This man was wicked. He brutally killed people tortured people, especially those he conquered. He was a tyrant. Evil. You know, it's amazing that if God wanted a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, there's literally no one beyond the reach of his love. I should also point out, if you boil it all down, Nebuchadnezzar's ultimate hang up when it came to God centered upon himself if you want to be honest Nebuchadnezzar's hang up wasn't intellectual like as we've noted he knew God existed nor was his problem exposure he had friends in his life who testified in fact his problem wasn't even experiential he had seen firsthand with his own eyes that God was active and powerful no For Nebuchadnezzar, it would seem his hang-up was practical. In light of the life he had built for himself, this mighty kingdom, heaven on earth, Nebuchadnezzar believed that he didn't really have a use for God, a need for God. His success blinded him of his frailty and deeper need. Now, when considering the difference between pride and humility, you know, we often overcomplicate the simplistic. Humility. It's not being self-deprecating. It's being self-aware. Like A humble person has no disillusionment as to the true nature of self. A humble person knows who they are. They're honest about it. Forthright. And then in contrast, pride. Pride is the opposite of self-awareness. Pride is instead a warped and distorted view of oneself. You know, originally found in Proverbs 3, verse 34, but, but then again repeated in the New Testament in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. The Bible states that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You see, the fundamental baseline for God's transformational work in a person's life, the most base thing that has to exist, Is an acknowledgement by the person that they have a need for such a transformational work. Like, apart from that, there is no gospel message. You see, the reason that pride is so dangerous is that it'll blind you of the reality of your need, it celebrates who you are while denying the need to be made into someone different. My friend, if you're proud of who you are, if you're good the way it is, then you have no real need for the work Jesus came to offer. For a proud Nebuchadnezzar to experience the fullness of the work God wanted to accomplish in his life, a humbling was necessary. Like in order for this haughty king to see God for who he was, he had to first accept the truth of who he was. Humbling. You know, this is why Daniel encourages Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Repentance and humbling accomplish the same thing. Repentance is is the confession of who you are. It's the acknowledgement of brokenness. It's the the expression of the need of, of insufficiency. You know, in his pride, Nebuchadnezzar looked around, and he boasted of the heaven that he had made for himself on earth. This is how the whole story started. He was there at his palace walking around, admiring, boasting, taking pride in. In order to work in his life, Nebuchadnezzar could repent of such a haughty attitude, acknowledging who he was, accepting that he had a need so that God could work. Or if he wasn't going to do that, God would have to completely strip all of those things that he took pride in, away. And yet, what's amazing about our story, is once humbled, and knowing that there was nothing that he had done worth being proud about, Nebuchadnezzar immediately does what? First he looks around, takes pride in what he had done. Now, humbled, looks up, No longer looking, he looks up. And he doesn't boast in himself. He worships the King of Heaven. Never forget, only the wretch can truly sing of God's amazing grace. (laughs) Humbling. (laughs) It's a terrible experience. But it's healthy. Now You understand, when God intervenes in your life, When he humbles you. His intention is not to destroy you. Again with Nebuchadnezzar. Steps were taken to preserve him. To safeguard him in this vulnerable time. See God doesn't intervene to destroy you. But he intervenes to realign. To readjust your perspective of self. As we've seen with King Nebuchadnezzar. humbling and tends to be a reminder of who you truly are. You are not who you think you are. You're not okay. You're in need. And that's all right. The reason that either repentance or a humbling is necessary in the life of someone filled with pride is that in reminding you who you are and humbling, God is bringing you to a place of his grace. God gives grace to the humble. Grace. It's a place where you realize you matter not in the context of Him mattering most. And in the end, you know Nebuchadnezzar was a true convert. I even can't believe that there's some debate about this. I think we'll meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I look forward to it. I'm confident he was a convert. And here's why. He viewed the difficult journey that had been necessary to bring him to the place of God's grace as he's looking back on things. That journey that had to humble him to bring him to God's grace, he said it was totally worth it. The relationship he had with God yielded through this experience that was necessary Wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Seven years from the throne to a pasture humbled him. And yet as he looks back on this experience, remember how he starts all of this. He affirms. Hey, I thought it good to tell you, to declare the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. He refers to being possessed and driven into the fields for seven years as signs and the wonders of a mighty God. At work in his life. And then he says, Those signs, those wonders, oh, how great they are, how mighty they are. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. What a transformation. That's how you know someone's converted when their life is transformed. Nebuchadnezzar, he recognized his kingdom on earth, it was nothing compared to the king and the kingdom of heaven. Again, let me repeat his final words. You'll learn a lot about a man with his final words. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works, they can be tough, but they're true. And his ways, they can be difficult, but they're just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to put down So Father, Lord, we thank you for that word, this amazing story of Nebuchadnezzar.